Our scripture reading today is Mark chapter 5, verses 1 through 20. They went across the lake to the region of the Gerasenes. When Jesus got out of the boat, a man with an impure spirit came from the tombs to meet him. This man lived in the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been chained hand and foot, but he tore the chains apart and broke the irons on his feet. No one was strong enough to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and in the hills, he would cry out and cut himself with stones. When, Jesus, when he saw Jesus from a distance, he ran and fell on his knees in front of him. He shouted at the top of his voice, What do you want with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? In God's name, don't torture me. For Jesus had said to him, Come out of this man, you impure spirit. Then Jesus asked him, What is your name? My name is Legion, he replied, for we are many. And he begged Jesus again and again not to send them out of the area. A large herd of pigs was feeding on the nearby hillside. The demons begged Jesus, send us among the pigs, allow us to go into them. He gave them permission, and the impure spirits came out and went into the pigs. The herd, about 2,000 in number, rushed down the steep bank into the lake and were drowned. Those tending the pigs ran off and reported this in the town and countryside. And the people went out to see what had happened. When they came to Jesus, they saw the man who had been possessed by the legion of demons sitting there, dressed and in his right mind. And they were afraid. Those who had seen it told the people what had happened to the demon-possessed man and told them about the pigs as well. Then the people began to plead with Jesus to leave their region. As Jesus was getting into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed begged to go with him. Jesus did not let him, but said, Go home to your own people and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. So the man went away and began to tell in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And all the people were amazed. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Mark. You know, um, everybody has different experiences um, they go through and they encounter in life that are life-changing. I mean, if you think of some of the things you've experienced that have really changed the course of your life, they're usually pretty comprehensive, right? Um, I remember when I graduated high school and graduated college, I was thinking, man, the whole world's about to change. Things are going to be different. Or when I got married to Jamie, you know, things changed for the better. You know, I'm really grateful for her. Or when my kids are born, like each, you know, Avery, William, and Walker each bring things into my world that completely change the way in which I think about my life, who I am, what I really care about, what really matters, um, you know, and it was, those things have been life-changing for me. You know, if you had to list some life-changing events for yourself, what would they be? Uh, the story we just heard Mark read from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 5, it is a story that comprehensively changes the life of Lots of people, but specifically this one man who goes through something that is absolutely terrifying. I mean, his life is completely changed in a comprehensive sense. He is freed from oppression and from this influence of a personal evil. You know, everything is different for him because of his encounter with who Jesus is. Now, remember where we are in the story. Jesus has invited his disciples into a boat. They've come across the Sea of Galilee. While they trusted Jesus and came across the Sea of Galilee, 
They find themselves in a storm, a storm that's so overwhelming that even professional fishermen and boatsmen don't know what to do, so they wake Jesus. He calms the story from without, you know, outside the wind and the waves, and then he moves into the storm in their hearts and says, where's your faith? And then they make their way through the rest of the sea, throughout the rest of the journey. They get on dry ground, and then a demon-possessed man rushes them, and they have this encounter. Now think about that just from a personal experience of how absolutely exhausted they must have been emotionally and physically. This long time on the sea, going through a storm, they finally get their feet on dry ground, and then they're rushed by this man. What do we learn about this man? A few things. One is he's homeless, apparently. He's alienated. He's isolated. He cuts himself. He's naked. He's out of his mind. He lives in a graveyard. He roams through the hills screaming. And Jesus comes across this raging sea, and this is the first thing he encounters. One of the themes that Mark is trying to get us to understand uh, embodies it with these stories about Jesus is that he is powerful in lots of ways you can imagine and in many ways you can't. Like his power is comprehensive. All day, all night, this man roams around crying out. People don't know how to deal with him. He actually, Mark uses language where it talks how this man is actually stoning himself to death. He's cutting himself. He's absolutely miserable and tormented. Now, if we're honest, you know, maybe you've seen homeless people before. I don't know. Um, One time I was in L.A. on Skid Row and walking through there and was with some folks. And you see some things that kind of, you're like, man, this sort of resembles some of what I'm hearing here. Yes, and way more. Make no mistake about it. This man is being oppressed by a spiritual force of which we can barely imagine. One that calls themselves legion. And what we see with this personal evil, and this is what all evil does, but it's very sort of amplified in this moment, is that even though every man, woman, and child is created in the image of God, worthy in dignity and res- of dignity and respect, that every single person is created in such a way that by their very existence, they're communicating something about who God is. That's every person. And what evil does, and you can always see evil at work when you see this as a result, is it distorts and tries to damage and change the image bearer. It begins to take something away from the dignity that God gives to everyone. We see that obviously with this man. One commentator said this, The unclean spirit has taken over the center of his personality, resulting in a life of unbearable torment and alienation. Unable to function in human society, he lives among the tombs, that is, the realm of the dead, I mean, that's where he lives. Mark's description is designed to show how demonic influence distorts and destroys the image of God in humans. You know, for some people, we act like there's no such thing as really a personal evil at all, right? That's where some of us sort of land. We try to, nothing's really spiritual. And then others of us kind of find the devil under every stone, right? Uh, Both of those perspectives are off. The scriptures don't talk about evil in that way, but what the scriptures do discuss and what we see revealed here as the veil is lifted just a little on the reality of the dark realm or this realm of the shadows, this realm where demons are, is that you really don't want to go there. That it's a place when they have control results in a man who roams the mountainside who cries out, who cannot be constrained even by chains, who stones himself, and he's absolutely an outcast, existing in a way that God has not created him to be. That's sort of a big picture of it, but actually, anytime you see sin in your life, this is what it works toward. It works toward taking away who God has made you to be in either small ways 
or big ways that all lead to the same place, death. God is wanting us to move towards something greater, towards following him, towards being part of this kingdom that Jesus is revealing in this moment that yields life and liberation and a comprehensive sense to make things new. C.S. Lewis in his Screwtape Letters, um, one of the, the texts in there says, there are two equal and opposite errors into which uh, this race can follow about devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence at all. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive, unhealthy interest in them. They themselves are equally pleased by both the errors and hail both a materialist or a magician with the same delight. Right? You know, do you actually believe in the reality of a metaphysical realm? What Jesus is revealing is that, in fact, there is. That God himself is over all things. That Jesus has the ability to both be physically present to calm storms on the outside and the power to be able to say to the storms on the insides of our hearts, where's your faith? Trust in me. My ways lead to life. And so this man rushes Jesus and his disciples. They're obviously tired unless, you know, they somehow got a really good nap after that experience, but I doubt it. And this demon-possessed man says to Jesus this, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I beg you, don't torment me. The demon is fully aware of who Jesus is. Really good theology. He understands Jesus' divinity. He understands his authority. He understands the reality of who Christ is in that moment. He's confessing who Jesus is, though not submitting to him. He feels like he must because... This is the Most High God, and he calls out to him, What have you to do with me? Another, way to, another sort of way to think about what the, this uh, legion of demons is saying is, Why are you here? Mind your own business. We kind of have control and some things going on here. What do you want? Please leave. The Spirit begs Jesus not to torment him. Um, just exactly the same thing they've been doing to this man they have possessed absolutely tormenting him, destroying him in every single area of his life where he might have found joy or hope. Now, when the demon calls out to Jesus, or this group of demons, calling out to him in this way is not just sort of a subtle address. You see, in the ancient world, the idea of knowing the name of someone enabled you to have some kind of power over them. And this demon is using everything he can to say, okay, Jesus, I'm going to exert some authority here. I'm going to exert some power. Who are you, son of the Most High God? I know who you are. You don't want everyone to know, but I know who you are. And why are you here? Please don't torment me. And what does Jesus do? Jesus says, what's your name? And do you see what's happening there? In this one moment, the demon is trying to push in with authority, and Jesus immediately writes the situation and says, no, 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 no. What's your name? And he responds and says, we are legion. Legion's this Latin word that would refer to 6,000 troops uh, of the Roman guard, and so it's meant to be this sort of expression of, we're an army. And the disciples would have heard this, you know, Rome was oppressing and overwhelming, not just where the disciples were from, but in this area, kind of near the Decapolis, where the Gerasenes are, the same thing. And the demon is saying, we are a powerful force. We're this group of behavior. And so this man, although his illness, you know, as you kind of see him, you might play it off in some ways to simple mental illness. It is far more than that. He is being tormented by a legion of demons. And these demons tell Jesus, please just send us into the, the pigs. Send us into the swine. You know, they're territorial in a sense. 
They don't want to be cast out to a place where they can't do anything. And so Jesus does that. They don't have control over the pigs. The pigs go over the edge of the cliff and into the sea. And, you know, Jesus isn't really concerned that much for the livestock. His primary concern is to free this man, to rid him of this thing that has been oppressing him. All right, so let's reflect on the story a little bit. One thing to note, God values the life of one changed man. You know, if, if, if this story tells us anything, it tells us that God, and we've seen this in other parts of Mark so far, we see it uh, with the rest of the scriptures, we move into, even in Thanksgiving, talking about Jesus and his encounter with Jairus. Jesus is very interested with what it is you are experiencing at this exact moment. Whatever it is, that Christ enters into your moment and brings the kind of power that can calm waves and storms and that can shut down thousands of demons with a word. He brings that power to you. He desires your life to be impacted by His grace. You know, these demons come to Jesus and they beg Him not to, ca- to cast them out too far. And so He doesn't. He casts them into the pigs and they go down in the sea. They're away from the situation. The people, the herdsmen who hear about what Jesus has done. Remember, they've seen this guy roaming around like a crazy person. They see what he's done, but he's destroyed their pigs. And how do the people respond? They beg Jesus to leave. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine seeing Jesus do this and then beg him to leave the area? Please, leave the area. I'm glad you did this for Ted over here. But, like, you destroyed our whole herd of pigs. We don't know what you're about. The people here were Gentiles. They weren't expecting Jesus. They weren't following the scriptures in the Old Testament that are prophesying and saying, watch for these things. All they know is, is that this one has power and he's causing quite a ruckus. Matthew chapter 18 says this, What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? And if he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than the ninety-nine that ever went astray. So it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. And the gospel writers don't include every single story of what happened with Jesus in his ministry leading up to the cross. Mark selectively picks this one story. Why? Yes, to show that Jesus has power even over the dark realm. That's true. But also to show that Jesus is interested even in the one One who begs to go with Jesus, and Jesus doesn't allow him. In fact, Jesus goes back with his disciples and sends this man out. God is interested in you personally. He wants to know your story. He wants for you to learn to put your faith in him, no matter what it is you're facing. And he's gracious to you in the process. And what we see with this man, which casts a vision for us on the kind of work he's willing to do in our hearts, is that God's desire for us is not just to forgive us for our sins, It's true, Jesus does accomplish that. God actually desires to bring comprehensive renewal to us. Mark chapter 5, verse 15. And they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had the legion sitting there, clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. Everyone in the town, it was something that no one could contest. Something has changed in this man's life. There's something really huge that's happened. He hasn't just sort of bathed, you know, cleaned up and bathed himself. He's completely transformed. They find him sitting there, clothed, and in his right mind. Think about those three ideas for a second. He is seated. He's at rest. For the first time in who knows how long, he is experiencing actual peace. 
know, every Sunday at Grace, we say, may the peace of Christ be with you. And may it also be with you. God's promise to us as his people is to bring peace more and more into our hearts. If we're in the middle of a storm, his desire is to bring peace to us that he's with us in the storm. If we encounter things we don't understand, like in this story, he wants us to know, you may not understand all that's happening, but understand this, I have power even over thousands of evil forces. In a moment, I can cast them out. This man is seated. His entire life had been defined by torment. And in a moment, Jesus changes his life and enables him to have peace. And now because of this liberating power, this comprehensive expression of Jesus' grace towards him, this man is sitting at rest. He's seated at rest. Secondly, he's clothed. There's some symbolism going on here, but it's not hard to understand. It's like the nightmare you have where, you know, you don't have clothes. If you don't have clothes, it's, a, it's, a, it's an expression of shame in some ways. Remember in Genesis chapter 3 in the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve sin, and what happens? They immediately are ashamed because they realize they are naked. This man is now at rest and he's clothed. Jesus is in the process of restoring, in a comprehensive sense, this man's own experience of redemption. That Jesus is interested even in his physical needs. He's clothed, he's at rest, and he's in his right mind. This man is sane again. Just try to imagine what it would have been like to be walking around in this town and to hear the cries of this man out in the background, one that you remember when the group of people got together to hold him down and to put chains on his arms and to lock him to some stones, only to discover him free again the next day. Now he's sane. He's in his right mind. He's sitting at rest. He's able to have conversation. He's clothed. Look what evil does. It destroys, it distorts, it lies, it cracks. Look what Jesus does. It brings rest. It brings a covering. We're covered and clothed in the righteousness of Christ. It brings insight into our hearts through God's Holy Spirit working in His Word to help us understand who He really is and who we really are. Evil brings death. Jesus brings life. The resurrection, of course, is the perfect picture of that. Jesus defeats death, even at his weak moment where he cries out and he's abandoned, Jesus rises from the dead and brings resurrection. This is why addiction is so difficult. Um, You know, addiction experts tell us that where addiction thrives is when we're in isolation. And addiction doesn't just refer to substance abuse. Of course, it refers to substance abuse, but it refers to other things as well. What are you addicted to to give you peace? Maybe it's power. You know, have you ever felt like this? i felt like this. When I'm in control and everyone wants to do what I want to do, I find it so easy to be at peace. When everybody agrees with me, oh, Brad, that's a great idea. Let's do that 100%. I have no disagreements. I just find it so easy to access peace in those moments. But what about when my power is challenged? What about when your power is challenged? Are you addicted to power in order to find peace? You know, maybe it's an, you're an adrenaline junkie. You know, I've gotten over a lot of that. But the idea of seeking adventure to finally be at peace, to be at rest, to feel like you matter. Or what about status? How do you feel like when your status is challenged? You know, do you express humility, trusting that God's really got your back and that you can be gracious and humble because he's the one who really knows who you are and he's the one who defends you? 
Or do you feel a personal responsibility to make sure everyone understands exactly what you're thinking, no matter the cost? Right? The idea of self-righteousness. It's easy to get addicted to self-righteousness. To think, I'm better than all these other people. Or to be the chief critic. You know, no one's really impressed if you're able to criticize everyone else's weaknesses and point them out for everyone. That's not really that insightful. No one's perfect. The real challenge is to believe the gospel for other people. Yes, speak truth. But you can know your criticism isn't helpful whenever your criticism isn't providing a way to life. You notice God never tells us or shames us or puts us in a place where we're having to face our sin without a way forward. He says, look, this is your sin, but here's the way forward. This is what you've done, but through confession and trusting in me, here's where you find peace. This is where you find rest. Here's where you'll be experiencing being clothed in my righteousness. Here's where your sanity will be restored about what really brings life and doesn't. The criticisms of the evil one, on the other hand, why he's called the accuser, is there sort of accusations made to do nothing more than destroy and tear down and for that to be the end game or for that to be the goal. That's not what Christ leads us to. We're able to actually rejoice in the reality that God calls us into the new community, out of isolation, where we can find life. Now, some of you know I have a Jeep, um, and one of the things about having a Jeep is that you're kind of connected to this Jeep community. And if you're in Texas, about 90% of the time, if you wave at somebody who has a Jeep, they'll wave back. About 90% of the time. That, I think that ratio, that, that percentage, falls to about 25% when you're in Colorado. Because every 20 seconds, you're passing someone with a Jeep. And if you're from Texas, you try to do it for a while. Hey, what's up? Hey, what's up? Hey, what's up? Eventually, you're like, forget about it. Like, I just can't say hi to everybody. And the natives there know this. And so the first time you wave and they don't wave, you're like, hmm, not the same kind of Jeep crew, right? But eventually, you catch it. You're like, there's just so many of us. It's like we just can't say hi to each other all the time, right? Sometimes in the church, we can take community for granted, Sometimes we can think it's just not that big of a deal if we gather for worship. It's not that big of a deal if I'm really connected to a church. Look, God gives us the church so that we might remind one another and be reminded that He is a God who is seeking to bring rest, to clothe us in righteousness, to give us insight into our own hearts and minds, to bring calm to the storms that we each experience. That's the gift of the spiritual community called the church. Jesus restores this man to community. He restores him to to the ability to have relationships again. No one could be around this man. And now he's sane. He's in his right mind. He's clothed. You know, the demons begged Jesus not to torment them. And the townspeople begged Jesus to leave. And the man that was possessed by the demons, the man who was tormented, begged to follow Jesus. Jesus. He begged to go after him because his life had been transformed by encountering the power of the resurrection in Jesus. Mark chapter 5 verses 19 and following. And he did not permit him, but said to him when he asked to follow him, to come with him back across the sea, go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him and everyone marveled. Now, Jesus isn't rejecting him. He's not rejecting him. You've got to understand, Jesus at this point is in a Gentile area. And it would have been really complicated at this point to bring this man back with him to be part of his 12. The, the Jewish people had no category for this. 
So what does Jesus do with him? He doesn't tell him to be quiet. He doesn't tell him, oh, just, you know, kind of keep it to yourself. He sends him out. He commissions him onto a journey of telling other people only this, what the Lord has done for you. Jesus sends this man out and commissions him to go and just tell other people what the Lord has done for him. It's why, you'll, if you ever talk to people who plant churches or who go on uh, missionary efforts in other countries, one of the most powerful things that reveals to people just how transformative the gospel is is when people from that place experience God's grace and then express it. Kind of like us, as people who live in the woodlands. How are we being transformed so that we might imitate that grace towards others? our neighbors, our co-workers, the students that we're friends with, the people we walk with, you know, the people we encounter at the gym. Like God intends for his message of grace to go through those who have experienced and can say, this is what the Lord has done for me. You know, one man named John Wooden, have you ever heard of this guy? It's kind of a big deal, right? He has 10 NCAA championships in 12 years. He was a basketball coach for UCLA. He said this, failure is not fatal. Failure to change might be. I'm just going to add to this maybe a little bit to what he has said. Failure to change is, failure is not fatal, okay? Failure is not fatal. But failure to trust in what Jesus has said actually is. The only way we learn to change is not by muscling up and figuring out how to be better. That's not the way forward in God's kingdom. What does this man do in order to be healed? Nothing. Jesus gives him grace. Jesus restores him. Jesus gives him his dignity back. And then what does Jesus do? Go tell others about what the Lord has done for you. All that the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. If you want to know what God's calling you to this week, probably two things I could leave you with to think about. One is, have you really experienced God's mercy? That you are forgiven. That you are treasured that you are beloved, that He is with you right now walking with you as we approach Thanksgiving, that He's gracious to you. Have you experienced God's mercy? And then the second is, are you seeking to live a life that gives you opportunities to tell others about what the Lord has done for you? Look, there could not have been a more hostile audience uh, than that to which this man was called to go tell people about Jesus. They had no context for who Jesus was. He's a crazy rabbi who took a crazy man and gave him back his dignity. All he could do, this man, was tell people about what Jesus had meant to him and what he had done for him. And God calls us into that mission each individually. And if you don't know where the mission starts, it starts with the people sitting next to you. Are you living in such a way that God's mercy is so great and so good that those around you get to experience the fruit of it through forgiveness, through kindness, through mercy, through thankfulness? And then, of course, also people in your community. God is inviting us to be a people who simply do that, to live lives that show forth the kind of love and the kind of mercy and the kind of grace that he has given to us. Let me pray for us. Father, this morning we give you thanks that your power is so great and so beyond, beyond even what we're able to comprehend, that you give us pictures and stories in the gospel so that we can really see in real time what it was like for Jesus to bring his power into this place and onto this earth. Lord, would you be gracious to us this week as we seek to rest in your mercy, to remember that we're clothed in your righteousness,
to ask you to give our hearts insight into understanding you that we might both experience your grace and learn to more clearly express it in the lives of those around us. We ask all this in Christ's name. Amen.